Well, this morning we return to our studies in the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Your biannual reminder, not the book of Revelations, please, but the singular revelation of Jesus Christ. And this is a message, it's a revelation that is applicable and needed and useful. It was useful for the seven churches in Asia Minor that the book was originally addressed to. You find that in chapters 2 and 3. It was also useful for the Apostle John. We'll even see this morning the human author of this book, what he received, the revelation that he received was useful and challenging. We'll even see him stumble, and he records that stumble this morning in our text. But it's also useful for us. It's useful for us living 2,000 years later after God gave this revelation of His Son Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit to the Apostle John, written for the churches in Asia Minor. It's useful for us as well because we need to know and we need to remember that despite appearances, God's got this. Despite appearances, God's got this. And that's what Revelation tells us. We need to recognize that in the nitty and gritty of life. We've spent the last few months working through the New Testament book of Titus. One of the reasons we did that was, complete disclosure here, just to give me a break from preaching through Revelation, but also because with new people who are coming to be part of our church, it's helpful to go and look at the New Testament and re-remind ourselves to refresh and renew our sense of how the church is to function. And so we worked through this brief letter of Titus. And you remember what we saw in chapter 2? It was really a turning point, really a core truth of the book of Titus. In chapter 2, verse 11, where the word says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. I need that. You need that and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Now watch this. Verse 13 says, Waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. Titus was told by Paul, the people who lived on Crete, they were instructed to look for and anticipate the same things that those seven churches in Asia Minor were to look for and the same things that you and I are to look for. While we strive to live holy lives as forgiven people, we are looking for and waiting for Jesus to come back. That is our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so today we land in chapter 19 of Revelation as we pick up our studies again. Please turn there in your Bibles to Revelation 19. And what we find is that in this chapter, the, the great visions of Revelation, the great visions, they take a turn. This revelation and explanation of what will happen in the end times, we've, been, we've looked at a lot of grim, uncomfortable, bloody terrifying, troubling images. But beginning in our text this morning, there's a shift, there's a pivot and a turn. It's a hinge text. 
And the text that we're going to look at today bridges one vision and connects it with a new vision. A vision of the destruction and the heartache that sin brings and a new vision of the promises of God. And it links those two visions with common images and common themes. Because really what we've got here, I hope some of you looked back at chapters specifically 17 and 18. Because what we've got here is we've got what one person called the tale of two women. The tale of two women. The first woman is the harlot of Babylon. And the second woman is the bride of Christ. And there's a contrast here between the... Uh, the organized opposition to the rule of God, which is characterized symbolically in the Bible with the label Babylon. Anytime you see some kind of organized opposition to God, whether it's in our culture, whether it's in entertainment, whether it's in education, whether it's in government, whether it's really within kind of the, the rebellion that exists on our own hearts, it's a representation of what the Bible classifies as Babylon. It's rampant humanism. It's an unwillingness to submit to the lordship of Jesus, to the Creator. It's essentially the systems of Antichrist. The systems of Antichrist all through history, and especially in the end times, we've read about it in Revelation, it's the system of the Antichrist. That's Babylon. And Babylon is destroyed. We looked at it in chapter 17 and 18. I preached a message on chapter 17. Pastor Dave preached chapter 18. And there, in chapter 18 especially, there's this mourning over the final destruction of Babylon. And notice, look back in chapter 18 for just a minute. If you look with me at verse 20, there's an interruption here because there's a command... This is in the middle of all of the funeral dirges for the world system that opposes God. And notice verse 20, it says, Rejoice over her, that is Babylon, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Now that's really a foreshadowing of what we're going to see in the text this morning. But unfortunately, most of chapter 18 is not heaven rejoicing. It's earth mourning, because earth has placed earth systems, earth's cultures, humanity and humanism has placed all of its hopes in this organized opposition against God, and sooner or later that will all be destroyed. And chapter 18 is the mourning that happens because this opposition to God has been destroyed. And what we're going to find is if that's what happens on earth... Remember, the angel says there should be rejoicing, but it's not rejoicing on earth. The question is, what's happening in heaven? And that's what we find in chapter 19. When Babylon is finally destroyed, what happens in heaven? To show you that, let's go ahead and read. Uh, look in chapter 19, reading verse 1 down through verse 4. And as I always do, and as with all the Scripture this morning, I remind you this is God's Word for us today. Revelation 19, beginning in verse 1. After this, John says, I heard what seemed to be a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for His judgments are true and just. For He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of His servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke of her goes up forever and ever. 
And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen. In other words, so be it. Hallelujah. So it's a celebration. And that contrasts what we saw back in chapter 18 of the funeral dirge and the mourning over everything that we put our hopes in as a human system, everything the human world, humanism, puts its hopes in, ultimately will be judged and destroyed by the God of heaven. And here in chapter 19, you see heaven's response to that is rejoicing, is glorifying God. Now, before we go any further this morning, we've just got to ask this question. What do you mourn? What do you mourn in your life? What, what produces overwhelming sorrow for you? What strikes at the very core of your heart? You see this in what makes us angry, but we also see it in what makes us grieve and what makes us mourn. The quickest way to determine your core values is to figure out what you most treasure, and the way to figure out what you most treasure is to figure out what you cling to the most or what would terrify you and break your heart if you lost it. And sometimes those things can be good things that we idolize. But I think more often, if we were honest about it, we treasure things that are meaningless, that have no significance at all. What losses strike at the core of your heart? Now, before we go any further, I want to give you a, an overview and really a reorientation of what's happening here in the end times. And the way to understand this, because it's important as we get into chapter 19 and we move toward what we understand to be the kingdom of Jesus on earth, there are really, <clears throat> it's important to understand what God is doing in the process of history. And remember, creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. And so what we find here is that, first of all, we find the present age. And that's all the way through the Bible. And in the book of Revelation, it's the present age from the beginning of Revelation all the way through this text that we've just read. This is what's happening now. This is before the end age begins. So it's the present age, all right? And then we're all familiar with heaven, the new heavens and the new earth. We will land and dig into those truths right about the Christmas season, which will be great. And so we come to chapters 21 and 22 of Revelation, and those represent the eternal age. So we have the present age, the age in which you and I are living, the age in which John wrote, the age in which John wrote of up to chapter 19. This is the present age, and then there will be one day the eternal age. But what is often forgotten, in fact, what some believers deny, I think in error, is that there is another age. There is an intermediate age. And it begins here in chapter 19, and it essentially represents the kingdom of God on earth. And so beginning here in chapter 19 with verse 5, with the marriage of the Lamb, and going through the second coming of Jesus and the establishment of the kingdom in chapter 20, and then that final rebellion at the end of the kingdom, from here in the middle of 19, you have at least a thousand years described that encompass what we call the intermediate age or the kingdom age. Now, why do we say that? Well, 
any careful Bible student finds pervasive references, especially in the Old Testament prophets, but also in the teaching of Jesus. In the Old Testament prophets and in the teaching of Jesus, you find these references to a time or an age that is very unique. It reads like heaven. In fact, in many cases, it reads like heaven on earth, but it still has problems. It still has nations that have to be ruled with a rod of iron. It still has Gentile nations coming to Jerusalem to worship the Messiah of Israel. It still has the problem of death. It still has, at the end of the kingdom age, it has a problem of rebellion. And Bible students have always struggled to understand, basically, that doesn't sound like heaven. I mean, heaven is going to be glorious, Heaven's not going to have any problems. And so what happens is Bible students solve that quandary, the quandary of the mystery that some of these passages, specifically the passages that are promises to ethnic Israel that is redeemed, some of those promises don't sound like heaven. They don't sound like the perfection of heaven. And so there are two approaches taken to resolving this exegetical, this Bible study problem. The first problem is, is you just look at those passages and you spiritualize all of it. You just explain it away. And these people tell you there are two ages, the present age, the eternal age. Jesus comes back, heaven begins, new heavens, new earth, and that's the way it is. And anything that implies that there's an intermediate age where Jesus is reigning, but there still is an element of earthly uh, humans who have to come to faith, any of those problems those problems are just explained away or spiritualized away. How much better the second solution? The second solution is to acknowledge what we are acknowledging this morning, that there is the present age, but when Jesus comes back, it begins an intermediate age in which he reigns on earth, and then that leads into the eternal age. And that's what we have in chapters 19 and 20 of Revelation. We have this intermediate age. We have this kingdom age. And the fact that Revelation lays out that way gives further evidence that we ought not just explain those references away. It gives us a way to understand those references. And that's what we're going to look at over the next few weeks. Because Jesus does reign, we believe, literally for a thousand years. And during His reign, there are people on earth who are under His reign and under His rule, which is called a a rod of iron, And they will need to come to faith in Jesus as well. And we'll talk about that in the kingdom, but that is the intermediate age. Now, someone would say, well, that seems like that ought to be more clear. Let me give you an illustration. If you're out where I live, if you're out in Nolita, and you have cause to be going over the 101 on Patterson, if it's a clear day, notice the Channel Islands. Because you come to the top of that overpass, and you look at the Channel Islands, and if you were not from Santa Barbara, if you knew nothing about where the coastline exists, you would believe that that's more of the mainland. I mean, if you were really bad in geography, you know. (laughs) Because you can't see the ocean. All you can see are the mountains. And there's this vast ocean that's, I don't know, 500 miles, however long. I don't know how long it is out there to the Channel Islands, but it's way out there. And those beautiful islands on a crystal clear day, they look like you would assume 
that there, there is nothing in between, but there's a vast ocean in between. And that's the way it is with the time frame of Scripture. You see it in the Old Testament with the promise about the coming of re- the Redeemer and then Jesus' ultimate return. There's this gap that we're living in right now. The Old Testament prophets didn't see this gap. All they saw was the Messiah coming, the Messiah dying, and then the Messiah reigning. But they didn't see this gap, this valley from their perspective. In the same way, often this intermediate age is missed because it's a valley that has to be thought through. And the troubling thing is that it really seems that Revelation 19 and 20 spell it out pretty clearly, but it's often explained away by some of our brethren who interpret Scripture differently. But there are these three ages, the present age, the eternal age, and the intermediate age. Now to go back to the text, the text centers around hallelujah. Praise Yahweh. Hallelujah. That's what we find in the text. That word, surprisingly, it's only found four times in the New Testament. All four of them are in this chapter. I was surprised to find this week that it's only found 24 times in the Old Testament and all in the book of Psalms. In fact, the psalm that we read this morning ends with, praise the Lord in capital letters, that's hallelujah, praise Yahweh. And so, John is overwhelmed by this vision of heaven, which is enraptured in celebration of hallelujah, and we find two broad reasons that there is a hallelujah party in heaven. The first one is this, heaven cries out hallelujah because God will finally dispense justice. God will finally dispense justice. That's what we see here. In this text, and also in very many, if not most of the Psalms, where hallelujah is cried out, there is a connection with judgment upon evil. And we don't think of it that way. We think of hallelujah, my Amazon delivery came early. Hallelujah, the preacher didn't preach for 55 minutes this morning. Hallelujah, we're getting a new courtyard, a welcome courtyard in our church building. Hallelujah. And that's completely appropriate, let me tell you. But the interesting thing is, even in this text, what prompts the hallelujah is judgment. That finally, God dispenses the judgment, the justice that He has promised. And that's what we see. We've already read verses 1 through 4, but let me just point out for you, For example, look in verse 1 at the end of the verse. There's this cry from heaven which says, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Now, that's gloriously true. But let me tell you, without the next phrase, it wouldn't be true. For there to be salvation, deliverance, for there to really be glory, for there to really be power, you have to have His judgments that are true and just, verse 2. His judgments are true, in other words, they're valid, and they are just, in other words, they are fair. And so, when you talk about salvation, and you talk about glory, and you talk about honor, and you talk about God's power, you necessarily have to acknowledge that there must be, sooner or later, there must be some expression of His justice. His judgments are true and just. 
And then look at verse 2. This is what prompts the judgments in the middle of that verse. It says, for he, for God, has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth. This is Babylon, who corrupted the earth with her immorality. You say, where is that going on now? Do I need to point that out? The humanistic system that will not bow its knee to God, it is everywhere. It is pervasive. This is the spirit of Babylon. This is the spirit of Antichrist. And it is corrupting the earth with immorality, but worse than that, if it, you can say that, the concern, this is the burden of much of the book of Revelation, notice the next phrase, and has avenged on her, God has avenged on her, the blood of his servants. And so they cry out, hallelujah, the smoke from her, from Babylon, goes up forever and ever. Now, here's what this text is implying. This text is teaching us that even now, right now, in heaven, there is rapt, tension-dripped attention and anticipation about what's going on on earth. Can, can I say it somewhat colloquially? Right now in heaven, heaven is watching and essentially asking, how long will God let that go on? It echoes the cry of the martyrs in the fifth seal back in chapter, chapter number 6, where they cry out, O oh Lord, how long? This is the view of heaven. Heaven which is surrounded by and drenched with the holiness and the justice of God. And they look down and see what's going on on earth, which is God's special creation for His purposes. And they consistently have to be asking, how long will the God of creation, the Lord God Almighty, the holy God of heaven, how long will He put up with this? And chapter 19 answers the question. Because when God finally, at the end of time, waiting in His mercy and grace far longer than anyone in heaven could imagine, when God finally dispenses justice, there's a cry of hallelujah. There's a cry of praise Yahweh. This is the context, again, of hallelujah in many of the Psalms. Let me give you an example. In Psalm 104, verse 35, the text says this, Let sinners be consumed from the earth, and let the wicked be no more. Bless Yahweh my soul. Bless, praise Yahweh. In other words, hallelujah. Praise Yah. Praise Yahweh. Hallelujah. And the concern here, the primary concern, even though it's a general concern about immorality, there's this primary focus on the blood of the martyrs the injustice against Christian martyrs, and it hangs over all of Revelation. You see it? Look at the last verse of chapter 18. You see it? It says, And in her, in Babylon, was found the blood of the prophets and of saints and of all who have been slain on the earth. That's the guilt of Babylon. And heaven is saying, God, when will you judge this? When will you bring justice? And when he does, in chapter 19, he has destroyed Babylon, and there's a response in heaven that says, hallelujah. Now, we have to be careful. It's not hallelujah that these individuals are tormented forever. Although, if they are impenitent, they are. 
But it's hallelujah. So let me be clear. It's not taking delight in the torment of lost people. It's recognizing that the justice and character of God has been vindicated. This is the ground of our crying, hallelujah. And that's what we find here. You see it there in verse 2. Once again, the phrase, for his judgments are true and just. And as we live here in what C.S. Lewis famously called the Shadowlands, as we are living in the already but not yet, we read these words, his judgments are true and just. And I want to ask you this morning, just by way of application, do you believe this? Do you believe that God's judgments are true and just? Do we value this? When, when evil is exalted, when right is called wrong and wrong is called right, do our hearts grieve, not just for the effects that it has in our own lives, but do our hearts grieve because the holiness of God is besmirched? His judgments are true and just. And this text cries out hallelujah. There's a chorus in heaven which cries praise Yahweh because finally He is dispensing justice. In Revelation 19. Well, there's another cry. Hallelujah is based not just on the dispensing of justice, but beginning in verse 5, there's also a cry of hallelujah because He is finally fulfilling His promises. He will finally, one day, fulfill His promises. Fulfill meaning in full. He will bring about in fullness. We have His promises now. Make no mistake. We can claim His promises now. But we wait for their full expression. And chapter 19 of Revelation anticipates that day when not only will He dispense His justice, but also when He will fulfill the promises that we live in and breathe in. After this present age, beginning with the kingdom age and then moving into eternity, Jesus fulfills to us His promises. The King will reign with no rival. Look at it in verse 5. Let me show you what it says. Verse 5 says, And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you His servants, you who fear Him, small and great. By the way, the, te the technicalities of the text I just can't get into this morning. We don't really know who this voice is. It's not God's voice. It's from the throne. I think likely it's one of the four living creatures that we've seen described earlier in the book of Revelation. But the point is it comes with the authority of heaven and it says for all of us, likely this is an address to the saints that are in heaven and on earth at the time, we are to fear Him. We are to praise Him. Hallelujah. Notice in verse 6, Then I heard what seemed to be a voice of a great multitude, like a roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out. Here it is again. Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Stop. Do you believe that? I mean, He begins to reign in fullness, but He reigns now. And I wonder if our emotions are not deceived by so much of the heartache around us, by so much of the sin that we see around us and sometimes the sin that we see in our own hearts. And we forget this fact that God is almighty and the very definition of who He is means that He reigns. 
and whatever patience, whatever waiting, whatever allowance he is giving for disobedience, it does not take away from his reign. But the promise of Scripture and of the book of Revelation is that finally one day his clock will run out. There will not be a snooze button on that clock. And he will dispense justice on the systems of Antichrist, and he will fulfill promises for people like us. And that calls us to cry out hallelujah. And so look at verse 7. Because of this, let us rejoice and exult and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. And if you look down in verse 9, there's also this acknowledgement, the marriage of the Lamb, and there's a supper or a celebration that's connected to that marriage. Now, ancient Near East weddings, if some of us had daughters and you struggled to pay for your daughter's wedding, uh, just be delighted that you didn't live in the ancient Near East, all right? Ancient Near East weddings, marriages had really three levels or phases to it. There was the betrothal, we're familiar with that because of the story of Joseph and Mary. The betrothal, which in many ways had marriage rights to it without the, um, the sexual pleasure and, and sexual bed, but still there was a commitment, there was a responsibility of fidelity, the betrothal period, and it could last for a long time. Let me say that again. It could last for a long time. Let me just jump ahead. We, the bride of Christ, we are betrothed to the groom, lamb. It is our betrothal period, and we are waiting, just like this metaphor of ancient Near East marriage, the betrothal period. Then finally, there would be the time of presentation, where there would be the presentation of the bride to the groom. And it was, a, it was a party. They would take a trip to the bride's house. The groom would receive. They would go back, and then there would be the wedding night. So this was the marriage, basically, where it was consummated with physical union. But then the third category was there was a celebration. And the celebration could go on and on and on and on. History tells us days sometimes. We watched the way in Houston some people spent money on their daughter's weddings, and we were astonished. We were thinking, that's a down payment of a house right there that they're spending on that wedding. Not a Santa Barbara house, but a Houston house. It was a down payment of a house. But no matter how grand a party it was, sooner or later it was over. I was always the first to leave because I had done the ceremony. It was usually on Saturday. I had to preach on Sunday morning. But it would end. Ancient Near East weddings, the celebration goes on and on. So here's what the Bible does. Both in the Old Testament with the prophets, and then Jesus in his teaching, they leverage this understanding of a marriage celebration, and they basically say, this is what God's kingdom is going to be like. If I can say it colloquially without any disrespect, God's kingdom is a party, and it's a party that goes on and on and on. It begins in the age of the kingdom, but then what we find is that the, as the eternal age begins in chapter 21, we'll get there in a few weeks, the bride comes down from heaven, the new Jerusalem. It's like, wait a minute, the church was the bride. It's because the party and the wedding and the intimacy and the, and the, and the, the unending bond and the communion that is represented in a marriage, it never ends. And so right now we're in the betrothal period. Chapter 19 predicts the time in which we will be joined to 
the groom, the lamb. And then that begins the party, which is the kingdom, which goes for at least a thousand years on earth and then into eternity. And in all of this, God is fulfilling His promises to us. You think about what that meant to ancient people. Ancient people who very often, they didn't have the kind of food resources that we have. Their life was a day-by-day struggle for existence in many cases. They very rarely had abundance of food. Uh, Their work was almost always backbreaking. It was the toil of their hands. But every now and then in their life, they had a wedding celebration. And they probably had to save all of their lives to be ready for the wedding celebrations, but they fed their friends, and their friends rejoiced, and there was wine that flowed freely, and it was a, an extended party. And that was such a perfect picture in their hearts and minds for what Messiah would do for His own people, Israel, what Jesus will do for the church, that we will become His own, and that will never end. He will fulfill these promises. And that's what you have here. You have people who have been waiting in the betrothal period who say, hallelujah, because now he fulfills his promises. There's also a level of responsibility here. Let me point that out. Go back in the text and look at verse 7 again. In verse 7 it says, for the marriage, in the middle of the verse, it says, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Now, it goes on to explain that. Verse 8, it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. Let me stop. It was granted her. It was a gift to her. It was provided to her. But then look at what it says. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. So this symbolic clothing that the bride of Jesus has, which is white, implying the purity of it, this clothing was given, was provided by grace, and yet also has an element of obedience to it. You you can't miss the concern for holiness. The, The whole idea of a bride in a culture before our culture, the whole idea of a bride was her spotlessness. A virgin bride who was unspotted, who had devoted herself, kept herself only for her husband. This was the whole point of of the virginity in marriage and the celebration of marriage itself. The purity aspect. And that purity is a gift of God's grace, but don't miss this, it's also a responsibility. The wedding garments are given, provided for her, the bride, but at the very same time, the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints, the end of verse 8. Do you see that? And so, we receive the gift of grace, but also we have responsibility. The New Testament explains this. By the way, this is nothing new. We've seen it in Titus over the last three months. Look in Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And here's what Christ did in loving the church his bride. He gave himself up for her that he might sanctify or make her holy, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor 
without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. This is what Jesus has done for His bride, the church. He has made her, by His grace, in the gospel, He has made us spotless. But then we have a responsibility. Look in 2 Corinthians 7. Verse 1 says, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. 1 John chapter 3, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is, and everyone who thus hopes in Him does what? Purifies himself as He is pure. It's amazing that the purity, the idea of being pure, like a bride, is linked here to the coming of Jesus. And it becomes a motivation that one day we as the church will meet the groom, the lamb, and we want to be a pure bride. Jude chapter 20, or verse 20 says this, But you, beloved, building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus that leads to eternal life. So here's my question. We are the bride of Christ. He's going to fulfill these promises that are it's foreshadowed, forepredicted. It's, it's promised in chapter 19 of Revelation. So my question is, as the bride of Christ, we've got pure robes. Are those a gift or are those our responsibility? Are those given by God in His grace or do we have duty involved? And the answer to that question is yes. Like so many questions in Scripture. Yes, God by His grace gives us holiness And until we reach that place, we have to choose holiness. This is our responsibility. He will one day fulfill His promises finally. And He will one day finally dispense justice. But how do we know? How do we know? Look back at verse 9 to finish our text this morning. Revelation 19.9 says this, And the angel said to me, Write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Now note that. We'll come back to it. These are the true words of God. But look what happens in verse 10. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. The angel. You catch this? And he said to me, you must not do that. Now, we've got to stop and deal with this. It's like, here's John, led by the Holy Spirit, recording these visions, and he's overwhelmed with something that happens with this hallelujah chorus from heaven about God finally dispensing justice, and on earth about the fact that God finally fulfills His promises. And when the angel says, write this, these are the true words of God, he falls down and worships the angel. Why would he do that? Let me tell you what's happening here. Think about the life of John. From what we know, he's on the island of Patmos. He's well into his 90s. He's had a hard life. He's in exile. We don't know what kind of torture he's gone through. 
He's at the end of his life, waiting his whole life for Jesus to come back. Jesus said, I'm coming back. John believed it. And so he's been waiting. In the meantime, he's seen his co-workers murdered and martyred. At the very least, James in the book of Acts. We also have Stephen, the first martyr. We assume by this time that other apostles had lost their lives for the gospel. If you go read the letter of 1 John, we also know that he had seen apostasy happen. He had served churches where evidently people had professed faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior and then had apostatized, had fallen away, had denied the faith. How heartbreaking that must have been. And as he looked upon the survey of the Roman Empire, it sure looked like Caesar was Lord. By all appearances, there was no possibility that any power in the future could possibly overthrow the power of Rome. But now he's received this vision. A vision which, to this point, where we are, has culminated with hallelujah breaking out in heaven because God's going to dispense justice, and hallelujah breaking out on earth because God now is fulfilling His promises to the church, and He falls down in worship because he's overwhelmed at the goodness of God. These things are sure. And he loses his mind for a moment because he worships an angel. Overwhelmed with the promises of God. And he forgets himself, forgets who's in front of him, and he falls down in an emotional response of hallelujah because of what the God of heaven will do. And I think that's the reason he does what he does. It doesn't justify it. And so the angel says, no, 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 you can't do this. Angel worship was a problem, evidently, in that part of the world at that time. And Colossians 2.18 refers to the problem of worshiping angels. And so the angel makes sure he stops. By the way, if you go read chapter 13 of Revelation, you know who was eager to receive worship? is the beast, the Antichrist. Go read chapter 13. They're glad to receive worship. But here this angel stops John and says, no, no, you can't do this. And verse 10, the idea is, watch out. You, you must not do that. And with all of that explanation, with all of the mystery in all of this, like what was going on with John? He does it again in chapter 22. We'll see that in a few weeks. But listen to what it says. I am, the angel says, I am a fellow servant, really slave, I am a fellow slave with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And remember back in verse 9, it says, these are the true words of God. Listen carefully. How do you know? How do you know that God will dispense justice? How do you know that God will finally fulfill His promises? One word. Jesus. Jesus is the guarantee of God's promises. Jesus is the center of all prophecy. This is how we know. This is what the angel is saying. That the revelation of Jesus Christ, everything is about His glory. Everything is about His kingdom. Everything is driving toward His magnification and His honor and His reign. 
and it's all about Jesus. And anything that is legitimate prophecy to understand the truth of God, I think prophecy here is a general category for God dispensing his truth. Anything that is about that is true is linked to Jesus. And if they get Jesus wrong, you can ignore their prophecies. Because it's the testimony of Jesus, it's his life, it's his, his death, his resurrection, his future reign. It's all about Jesus. The testimony about Jesus reflects and defines and represents the spirit of prophecy. It really does all come down to Jesus. And listen, folks, whatever you've done, whatever you think of revelation, whatever you think of church, whatever you think of this activity we do every Sunday morning here, If you haven't dealt with the issue of Jesus as both Savior and Lord, you will be on the wrong side of these hallelujahs at the end of time. I call you today. The only way you will be made right with this holy judge of heaven is to confess, acknowledge your sins, and put your hope and faith in Jesus and Jesus alone. His death on your behalf will cover your sins if you respond in repentance and faith. We'd love to help you with that. That's what we call the gospel. It's the good news. And it's summarized in the life and the work and the person of Jesus himself. And this is how we know. It's how we know our sins are forgiven. It's how we know that God will one day dispense justice. It's how we know that he will also fulfill his promises because the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So what we find here is that God's got this. The seven churches needed to hear it. So did John, and so do we. And how do we know that the words of God are true? What does it all add up to at the end of the day? When Jesus came, this same author, John, in writing his gospel, said this, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. Grace in the mercy and love that he bestows, he fulfills his promises. He makes people like us his bride. That's grace. And Jesus is full of grace. And in his grace, he will fulfill his promises. But there's also a fullness of truth. And truth, at the very least, encompasses his right and true and holy justice that he dispenses. You can't have one without the other. You can't have Jesus who is all mercy, love, grace, forgiveness. We're all just going to get along forever. If you do away with the core of his being, which is the eternal God, which is not only full of grace, but also he's full of truth, the truth of his holiness, the truth of his justice. And what we find in this text this morning is we cry hallelujah, and one day we will from heaven hear a cry of hallelujah because finally the time is up and Jesus, God the Father, the Holy Spirit, the God of heaven will dispense justice and he will fulfill his promises. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Today's takeaway for you is the testimony of Jesus 
is grace and truth. Grace and truth. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these glorious promises. We long for this day, the day in which your holiness will shine forth like a blazing sun at midnight, where you will dispense your holy justice against the systems of Antichrist and Babylon, and you will fulfill your promises to the church and to Israel. Father, until then, we live here in this valley. We live in this in-between time. We live in the shadow lands. We're in the, this betrothal period where we wait. And may you find us faithful, and may we pay attention to the holiness of our robes, these righteous deeds that we've studied over the summer in Titus. May we recognize that Though we have received by grace the gift of new life, we are to live that out. Father, find us faithful and help us be hallelujah people who are willing to praise you for your justice and also thank you and glorify you for the grace that you give us in fulfilling your promises. Lord, Jesus indeed is worthy. And may we not only profess that with our voices this morning, but may we demonstrate that with our lives this week. In His name we pray. Amen.